This podcast series, A Legacy of Kindness, telling the story of Jaya's, is compiled from oral histories and produced as part of a digital exhibition exploring the rich history of the UK's trans and gender diverse charity, the Gender Identity Research and Education Society. Episode 2, Trans at Work. This episode looks at trans people in employment and how the charity's efforts have sought to change patterns of discrimination. Being trans at work has historically been difficult and sometimes even impossible. The extent of discrimination brought up in the interviews might be surprising, but this stemmed from a lack of employment rights. Over time, employment rights for trans people were gradually acquired and confirmed through a number of court cases. Giles itself was in large part born out of Bernard and Terry Reid's involvement with their own daughter's employment discrimination case against Chessington World of Adventures in 1997. Within this difficult environment of job insecurity, Giles worked to combat workplace ignorance, producing training resources for employers. Trans employment research was funded by the charity including Professor Stephen Whittle's report from a survey conducted in the year 2000 on trans employment discrimination. Yet, in spite of the work done, continued efforts to combat workplace discrimination remain vital. In the 70s, 80s and the early 90s, being trans was really dangerous. You'd lose your job, you'd find it very hard to get work again, and I had a family to support. In 1980s, when I first started considering, I spoke to a specialist, <laughs> claimed to be a specialist, spent some money for her opinion, and which was, that's fine, Physically, there will be no problem in your gender transition, but you will render yourself unemployable. Unemployable. You did a wonderful job. You were marvellous. You were absolutely fantastic. We couldn't have asked for anybody better to do this job. But we can't possibly employ somebody like you. I just know. It's like, just take my heart out and throw it away in the, way of the bin, you know? Because that's what you're doing every time you do that. I ended up doing jobbing work on everything from building sites to little bits of bookkeeping. Unfortunately, a job that I had for nearly a decade, I had to leave again. Then I had to discover all the funds of trying to find new work as a freshly hatched trans woman who was experiencing massive amounts of social anxiety. Over the years, I lost my job five times for being trans in my private life, which was crazy. My private life had got nothing to do with my job performance. In fact, most of the time, if I had time to be myself, I was less stressed and did a better job. And that was my life up until 
around the early 90s when I lost my job yet again for being trans and I was very sad because I got paid well, I got big bonuses, I had a nice expenses account, a very nice car <laughs> and all that went and my salary in the next job was less than a third of what I'd been earning. One of the things that had happened to me was I'd worked at the university. My boss had pulled me up one day and said, what the fuck is wrong with you? You're a really good worker, but you are all over the show. And I burst into tears and said, I really want to have a sex change. I'm seeing this doctor. He says he won't give me anything until I have been working for three months as a man. You know, I've got this name, Stephen, I've done all that. He won't let me do it. Ray just looked at me and said, is that it? He said, yeah. He said, okay, we'll get that sorted. He said, right, now let me see. If you take the next fortnight off, just go on holiday, I'll give you some compassionate leave or something, and I will sort this out. And he did. He told the technicians I worked with that it was going to happen. They were going to have to get used to it. They were going to have to practice saying good morning, Stephen, before I went back in, because he was not going to tolerate any shite, basically. My line manager said, well, no one has done this kind of work so well for me ever before. Would you consider working for us at the same salary but just doing three days a week, I'll pay all of your travel, all of your accommodation, all of your expenses, if you'll just do us another year for three days a week. And I said to him, well, you know, yes, by all means, but you do need to know. And I explained that, you know, I would be medically transitioning at the end of that year. And although at the time he said, oh, that's, nothing to me, I implore you for your brains, not your body. Later in court, he said that it was like a bombshell. I was terribly well known, and so, you know, it was actually very difficult to uh, get another job. And of course, you try all of the strategies, you try telling the truth, people just look appalled. You try saying nothing, and halfway through the interview, someone starts to read the CV, finally. It's hopeless, so I had to move to a sector where I was completely unknown, did another doctorate to support that shift, was, at the time of the case, managing, just about getting by. Our daughter, when it came to her work situation, was in such a vulnerable position in a very macho environment. But the policies at the time, and still to a certain extent, are that you go public, at work, and everywhere else, and she was obliged to do that. She was obliged to go public. I tried to work with the company in the initial stages. We then went into this saga of things that happened to her that went on over several years. She was in a team of 17 young men, and over a period of time, they tampered with the brakes on her motorbike they put a razor blade under the handle of her car door. 
They spray painted her clothes with obscenities and they stole her tools. They put used Tampax on her workstation and they refused to work with her, which in the end turned out to be the worst possible thing because she was working doing this heavy lifting and stuff and she had injuries which prevented her working. Eventually, she became a permanent wheelchair user. Before the case was taken, we knew that the case going through Europe was very important and that just immediately preceded ours. It was a groundbreaking finding. What it actually demonstrated was that following the then recent finding in Europe, that our own law, the 1975 Sex Discrimination Act, actually applied not only to sexual orientation, but also to gender identity, and that it applied not only in public organizations, but in private organizations. Employment came out as the number one issue for people, because you had to pay for so much of your services that you accessed and your treatment. If you didn't have a job, you became completely socially isolated. You'd often lost your family and your home. You moved into a strange place and nobody wanted to make friends with you because you looked weird. You couldn't pay for your treatment and you basically sank into poverty and destitution pretty quickly. Through the website, we've got all sorts of queries, usually about employment. Can they refuse to employ me because I'm trans? The answer to that is no. But equally, there is a very high proportion of trans people who would like to work are not finding work. I've come to learn how tough it is for trans people to come out at work and for them to go about their work in daily business and just be themselves. And, you know, there's so much ignorance out there. I've spoken to people about work, about transitioning, and we decided it would be easier if there was some training at work to explain about trans people and about what I was going to be doing. I'd heard of this organisation, Gyres Charity. So I got into contact with them, went down to see Bernard and Terry. And they agreed that they'll be able to do some training where I was working. And they came and did a session for management and a session for employees. And they helped me through my transition at work. Inside of work, I was still male expressing. And I got to March 2010 thinking I need to do this because I'm actually becoming a bit schizophrenic. You know, I'm two people. So I carefully planned what I was going to do, which was went back onto the Giants website, printed off the transitioning at work guide. I'd equally phoned a lawyer just to get them on standby, just in case the conversation didn't go very well. Took my loan manager out to lunch. I had a glass of wine for Dutch Courage and I told him the news. His response will stay with me forever, which was just tell us what we can do to help and support. And I said, that's brilliant. That's exactly what I want to hear. I gave him the Jaya's guide. I said, look, this might help. Next morning he came in and he said, I've read the guide. That was super helpful. So let's talk about when are you thinking of expressing, Emma, when do you want to come into work? How are we going to make this work? And so together we worked on a plan. So the guide really helped. 
I revisited the employment issues through surveys as interviews. And it was very interesting, really, because we had seen a change. People were more likely to be employed, and it's easier to have employment, but you'd see the significant shift of people who had been in the private sector moved to the public sector. Why? Well, because trade unions, who took a welfareist approach, particularly in local authorities, were really upon, you know, inclusion. You saw people who were really big in industry move out into much lower paid local authority jobs because they were safe there. I'm working in the financial services market, the trading floor, you know, typically a very aggressive environment that's not typically viewed as the most inclusive. It took me a long, long time before I felt safe and ready to sort of come out in the corporate workspace. I always kept the corporate part of myself a facade and not totally authentic and not totally out. I'd reached a point in my life where I thought that wasn't acceptable. I didn't feel the need to do that. And, you know, more so I felt that society had progressed to a point where there was better understanding of a wide set of trans identities. It took a while in my head before I started to see society at least beginning to comprehend and consider some of the different identities. In 2014, I had been in conversation with a couple of trans and non-binary people in London. We knew there was a networking group in London for those working in different professions. But typically, if you went to one of those networking events, you were the only trans person there. And I remember speaking to Bernard and Terry saying, what should I do? And they said, put something on. We put on a first event for trans and non-binary professionals in London to come together as a networking group. We formed an organisation called Transformation. We started to get companies coming to us saying, we want to put training on for trans and non-binary inclusion in the workplace. Would you be interested in providing it? Without any hesitation, Bernard saying, how can we help Enjoyers? We can you know, put you under the Giles umbrella. We can have you as part of our family. We can refer work to each other. And I just thought that was just amazing and awesome. And I still do to this day. We do so much now, whether it's education, podcasts, courageous conversations, um, celebrating the different days, really elevating role models within the firm that have come out as trans, gender non-conforming, and using as much of that to really make visible across the entire company and, and also outside the firm. Working with Jairus has been this giant surprise where I've enjoyed doing things I never thought I would enjoy doing, and I've felt like just so validated and it, it took me a long time to realize that a lot of this is because being trans isn't an issue because it's gyres so when you remove all of that stress always feeling like you're going to be questioned or people are going to be curious about you you remove all of that and then you find out that actually you can do a lot more than what you think you can do it just feels very affirming very exciting This podcast series of oral histories is part of the exhibition Jaya's A Legacy of Kindness, 
a project made possible with the National Lottery Heritage Fund, thanks to National Lottery players. It was produced by Lucia Skazocchio from Social Broadcasts, with sound design and original music by Samuel Robinson, and narrated by Corin Foddering. The community curator sub-team was led by Georgia Marker, with special thanks to all the contributors who agreed to share their stories. For more information about what you've just heard, do visit the project website lok.girs.org.uk.